0: Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the writer's block. This is Mary Carr. I'm reading from my new book, Lit, which just came out. Harper Collins to rather rapturous reviews. And uh, this section begins with a quote from Wallace Stevens, which sort of holds up what I think about poetry. People should like poetry the way a child likes snow, and they would if poets wrote it. It starts when I'm tending bar. In the dim realm of that horseshoe bar, I ruled credibly lying to wives and business partners who phoned in that my patrons were not, in fact, sitting before me hours on end, imbibing. Such lies kept my tip jar stuffed. Plus, compared to those guys, with their car wrecks and one-night stands, my occasional blackout or sidewalk puke fest was Bush League. Binge drinking disagreed with me in no way. The hangovers that haunted the other restaurant folk tended to spare me or the ones that knocked me out, gave me an excuse to bail from ordinary commerce, and loll around feeling resplendently poetic. I drank less steadily than some kids my age, 21, but now I had an appetite for drink, a taste for it, a talent. Maybe it fostered in me a creeping ambition deficit disorder, but it could ease an ache, alcohol. So anything worth doing could be undertaken later paint the apartment, write a book, quit booze, sure, tomorrow, which ensures that life gets lived in miniature. In lieu of large feelings, sorrow, fury, joy, I had their junior counterparts, anxiety, irritation, excitement. But humming through me like a third rail was poetry, the myth that if I could shuffle the right words into the right order, I could get my story straight write myself into an existence that included the company of sacred, misfit poets whose pages had kept me company as a kid. Showing up at a normal job was too hard. Who knows? Maybe I'd still be straining martinis from a silver shaker. The place I worked was a nice joint. Had I not bought a ticket to a Midwestern poetry festival so debauched that it couldn't survive even the extremely low bar of acceptable behavior back in the 1970s. Down the dorm hallways, marijuana smoke hazed lazily. At readings, bottles of syrupy wine were passed around. A poetic Woodstock, I told Mother it was, on my call home, regaling her with the circus-like atmosphere she'd have been inspired by. I actually saw living, breathing poets. Back in high school, I'd fallen in love with the visionary anti-war work of Bill Knott, who'd become a cult figure, partly through a suicide hoax. After collecting rejection slips for a few years, he'd wound up sending a mimeograph note to America's poetry editors, saying something like, Bill Knott died an orphan and a virgin. The allegedly posthumous poems came out under the pen name St. Gero, who was a character in an 18th-century porno novel who ran an orphanage and sodomized all his charges. The grotesque humor of the endeavor won me over, particularly when Knott came out from behind his mask with his second book, Autonecrophilia, which it took me a while to figure out, referred to masturbation after death. Knott lumped up to the stage a hulking bubble of a guy in sweatshirt and pants he might have rifled from a dumpster. His heavy black glasses, worn in a wire-rim age, were lopsidedly held together in the center by Band-Aids. His fair hair hung in unwashed strings. He drew a palm from a wrinkly paper bag stuffed with pages, and after reading a few lines, he said in a disgusted voice, That's such crap, stupid moron, not. People laughed nervously, looking around. He wadded up the page and tossed it. The room roared. That's pretty much how the reading went, one balled-up page after another, mingled with lyric poems of great finish and hilarity. The audience hooted in wild, rolling waves. Guys in the front row started throwing the paper balls back, which made Knott hump even deeper in his oversized clothes, as if dodging hurled tomatoes. At the end, a guy in a tie next to me said, I used to think poets shouldn't get public grants, but this guy really can't do anything else. When not left the stage, people hollered for him to come back. I sat on the hard floor almost to quiver. Writers had heretofore been mythical to me as griffins, winged otherworldly creatures you had to conjure from the hard-to-find pages they left behind. That was partly why I'd not tried too hard to become one. It was like deciding you were going to be a cowgirl or a mermaid. In our town, down in Texas, the only bookstores sold gold-rimmed Bibles, big as coffee tables, and plastic dashboard figurines of Jesus, flaming heart all day glow orange. Yet I'd believed, through grade school, my own mother's lie that poetry was, in fact, a Bible profession. As a toddler, mother's slight blue volume of Shakespeare served as my booster seat, and in grade school, I memorized speeches she'd read aloud to distract or engage her. Picture a bedridden woman with an ice pack balanced on her throbbing head while a girl, aged seven, draped in a bedsheet, wearing a cardboard crown, recites Macbeth as Lady M scrubs blood off. Out, out, damn spot. Then social mores had intervened. A distinct scene from junior high flushes vividly back. Girls, sitting out of rotation volleyball in gym class, stared at me all gap-mouthed when... On a rainy spring day, I spouted E.E. Cummings. Through the open green gym doors, sheets of rain erased the parking lot we normally stood staring at, as if it were a refrigerator about to manifest food. The poem started, In just spring when the world is mud luscious. As I went on, Kitty Stanley sat cross-legged in her black gym shorts and white blouse, peeling fuchsia polish off her thumbnail with a watchmaker's precision. She was a mouth-breather, Kitty, whose blonde bouffant hairdo featured, above her bangs, a yarn bow the color of a kumquat. That's it, Beverly said. Her black-lined gaze looked like an old-timey bandit mask. Indeed, I said. This was my T.S. Eliot stage, circa ninth grade, when I peppered my speech with words I thought sounded British, like, indeed. Is that a word, Muddy Delicious, Kitty said? Mud luscious, I said. It's not no real word, Beverly said, leaning back on both hands, legs crossed. I studied a volleyball arcing white across the gym ceiling and willed it to smash into Beverly's freakishly round head. I said, it's squashing together, luscious and lush and delicious, and all of it is applied to spring mud. It's poetic license, I said. I think it's real smart how you can learn every single word so they come out any time you want, Kitty said. Beverly snorted. I get mud all over Bobby's truck flaps, and believe you me, delicious doesn't figure in. As insults go, it was weak, but Beverly's facial expression, like she was smelling something, told me to put poetry right back where I'd drug it out from. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.